Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 436th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you in part today by ICD-10 Monitor. And joining me as my co-host is the exceedingly popular Dr. Erica Reamer. And as you know from listening to these many Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts, Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Oh, thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Our lead story this morning is about the pandemic. The daily new cases of COVID-19 appear to be rising in almost every state in the country. Thousands of folks across the country are falling ill from this deadly disease. Yes, and this is a serious situation, made even more so because it's starting to be flu season as well. It's like the perfect storm, the fall and winter cold weather, the flu and the virus, and it's unrelenting. Yeah, that's the perfect word. As a nation, we are in the grip of an unrelenting pandemic. And reporting our lead story this morning will be Dr. John Fogel. We've invited him to return to provide us with an assessment of the pandemic. And someone else we've invited back this morning is Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is going to discuss how the pandemic, which he calls the invisible viral pandemic, is adding more stress to our lives, especially during the 2020 presidential campaign. And Lori Johnson will be coming to us with her coding report. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What is on your radar screen? Well, Chuck, I have some COVID-19 info to share with our listeners. Mm, Looking forward to hearing that segment very much. We have a lot of news to report this morning. And, of course, we're going to begin with Tim Powell. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by MedLearn Publishing. For more than 25 years, MedLearn Publishing has delivered actionable answers to equip healthcare organizations to confidently meet their revenue and compliance obligations. Each publication, webcast, and newsletter is developed with you and your daily challenges in mind. 2021 is just a couple months away, and you'll need up-to-date resources to guide you through coding, billing, and compliance in the new year. And though budgets are tight, complete and compliant coding is more important than ever. So MedLearn has a special offer for you. Order before October 31st and save 10% on your 2021 MedLearn publishing resources. Here now is Tim Powell. Critical access hospitals, or CAHs, continue to struggle in the news. Now, who qualifies as a CAH? To be eligible, hospitals must meet the following conditions to obtain CAH designation. First, they have to have 25 or fewer acute care inpatient beds. They must be located more than 35 miles from another hospital with some very unusual exceptions. They must maintain an average length of stay of 96 hours or less for acute care patients, and they must provide 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week emergency care services. Now, critical access Medicare reimbursement. Medicare pays CAHs 101% of allowable cost. And before the call, I was answering some folks about miscommunication in terms of what this really means. It's not 101% of your charges, and it's not as great of a deal as it sounds like. So what costs are allowable? Non-allowable costs include marketing costs, income taxes, entertainment expenses, and a catch-all cost not related to patient care. 
by the time you run all the data through, Medicare is still paying less than the cost of care. The difference has to be made up in some way. And there was an old term that people used to use that is appropriate in this case. The old term was cost shifting. And cost shifting has been around since the Medicare program has started. And it just means that someone has to make up for the difference that Medicare is not paying for. So we pulled data, uh, financial data, on CAHs by year from Medicare cost reports recently. And what we, and then the data that we pulled is we took from worksheet G3 the net patient revenue and the net income that was reported to Medicare. And we found that while 2013 was a terrible year, the industry had bounced back, and that was followed by a steady decline. So we found in 2013 that the industry as a whole had an overall operating loss of 10.14%. 2014 had a, a break-even of, of about negative uh, 0.04%. In 2015, they jumped up to a 3.52% income on net charges, on uh, uh, net charges. And uh, that has continued to work its way down to, in 2019, once again, we are showing a loss of 1.3%. It means that, that most uh, critical access hospitals are showing negative income on their Medicare cost reports and financial statements. So we're waiting for cost reporting data for periods in 2020, and this data is going to be even more important for critical access hospitals or CAHs. Even if these reports show higher reimbursement per patient day and discharge, it will take years for these reports to yield extra payments to cash-strapped CAHs. The slim profit CAHs made from Medicare on separately billable drugs is uh, not making up for the fact that they have these losses. And it, the current blow to income is, going, is moving forward, and we hope that critical access hospitals or CAHs survive the continued downturn. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was compliance expert Tim Powell. He is also the ICD-10 national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's October the 20th, 2020, and you're listening to the 436th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic, constant change is the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you've had to adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. Conferences have been shut down from coast to coast, yet it's as important as ever to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now you can get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive webcasts covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori. Good morning, Jack, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so you may see a lot of pink, which is the signature color for breast cancer. For 2020, it's predicted by cancer.org that there will be 276,480 new cases of breast cancer. The earliest form of breast cancer is carcinoma in situ, abbreviated CIS. 
It is predicted that 48,530 new cases of CIS will be diagnosed in 2020. Unfortunately, 42,170 women will die from breast cancer this year. What may not be known is that 1% of all breast cancers that occur in the U.S. occur in men, and 400 men will die from breast cancer this year. Men have a 19% higher mortality rate than women for this disease, and there is less testing available for men. What are the risk factors for breast cancer, you may ask? Some risk factors that you can't control include gender, age, inheriting BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, family history of breast cancer, personal history of breast cancer, race and ethnicity, height, dense breast tissue, starting menstruation before age 12, experiencing menopause after age 55, exposure to diethylstilbestrol, DES, um, and having radiation therapy to test for other reasons. What is in your control includes alcohol consumption, weight, activity, no, not having children or having first child after the age of 30, not breastfeeding, and use of hormonal birth control, as well as hormonal therapy after menopause and smoking. The two best methods for early detection include annual screening mammogram beginning at age 40 and self-breast exams. Now let's talk about the ICD-10-CM codes. Breast cancer is coded to C50 category. The subcategory is impacted by the location within the breast and laterality. Breast cancer in situ is coded in category D05. The, morpho the morphology will tell you if the breast cancer is malignant or in situ. Metastases to the breast is assigned C79.81. Benign neoplasms are classified to category D24. Neoplasms that have characteristics of both benign and malignancy are assigned as uncertain behaviors. For the breast, the subcategory is D48.6. For prevention, don't forget to get your screening mammogram, which is coded as Z12.31. And if you have another type of screening for breast cancer, assign Z12.39. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was excellent. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. The campaign to elect the 46th President of the United States has been very contentious, adding stress to America's mental health already impacted by the virus. Here now with tips to help ward off that stress is Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and good morning, Dr. Moffick. So how do we prepare ourselves to deal emotionally with this upcoming election? Well, let's see, Chuck. But first, some may wonder why I'm discussing a political situation when this is a program and organization devoted to ICD medical coding. Well, for two main reasons. One is that many full-blown psychiatric diagnoses have been increasing for years and even more rapidly increasing this year, at least those influenced by undue social stress and trauma, that is, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and depressive disorders. 
Secondly, ICD-10 has actually been a strong supporter of the social determinants of health, and surely the governments of the United States is one of those social determiners. As such, we have Z60, quote, problems related to social environment, end of quotes. There are other Z codes that are also relevant to this pandemic time. And as Erica told us not long ago, these Z codes are underused, but they are good, but they are there for good reasons. Even if this premise is correct, then how to prepare to be as mentally healthy as possible in these next two weeks and in the aftermath of the election, no matter who wins? And a divisive aftermath could last a long time. Of course, there's lots of advice already floating around, like the usual diet, exercise, and control what you can, as well as the seven tips on the slides that I wrote in our display. But there was one I ran into serendipitously lately. On September 29th, I appeared on this show to talk about the emotional state of the country. Just right after the program, I walked past our TV, and whoever was on the local TV show, which I never ever watched because I think it is too sappy, it's called Morning Blend, I think, whoever was talking mentioned emotional agility. That's it, I thought. My recommendation back at the end of the September show was to try to find a sweet spot for your intensity of anxiety and depression. Not too much and not too little, just the right amount to fit the circumstances. But there are other emotions of importance, too, anger, irritability, and even joy among them. Plus, our emotional reactions may be like a roller coaster ride as the election plays out. What we need for all of that is emotional agility. So what is that? After the snippet on the TV show, <clears throat> I tried to find out the relevant literature. What I found was a book by Susan David called, wouldn't you know, Emotional Agility. Not only that, but it was released on September 6, 2016, right before the prior election. Did she somehow know that we were going to need that emotional agility then, and I think even more now? A teaser for the book about such agility is to recognize your emotions and think about how to use them for any given stressor. That ability to pause and dampen our reactivity to stresses is a key step to that agility. And breaking up the built-in chronic stress reaction in the times is absolutely critical because, if not, the body keeps releasing stress hormones, which lead to increased inflammation throughout the body and brain, and then including the poorly functioning immune system. What helps that transition the most continuously is another new book called Growing Old tells us being or having been in a satisfying long-term romantic relationship, good friends, being kind and volunteering will help. We've got two weeks before the election to increase such agility. Thank you, Dr. Moffick. I have to say I'm going to try some of those myself. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, one of the nation's foremost psychiatrists. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Dr. Moffick. And be sure to read my interview with Dr. Moffick on this very important and timely topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor. And across the country, some hospitals are searching for more beds and more nurses as the virus rebounds. That story is next. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. Stand by. Back by popular demand, ICD-10 Monitor is offering a series of on-demand webcasts that review important information from the 2020 AHA ICD-10 CMPCS coding clinics. The third quarter update is led by nationally respected HIM and coding professional Christine Geiger. During this on-demand webcast, Christine reviews and reports on questions asked and guidance given. 
and she notes correct code examples, so you and your team are up to date and on the same page with compliant coding guidelines. This session updates coders on important guidance in the AHA's third quarter 2020 ICD-10 CMPCS quarterly coding clinic. It's an information-packed on-demand webcast available shortly after the official publication. Register now to attend. Available on demand and only at ICD-10 Monitor. The coronavirus continues to dominate the news, family conversations, political debates, congressional hearings, and, of course, television news. Now, providing a physician's perspective on COVID-19 is Dr. John Fogel. Dr. Fogel consulted for the World Health Organization in the South Pacific. That was back in January and February. And then he returned to the U.S. to treat COVID patients in the Northeast. So, Halloween and Thanksgiving, boy, they're just not going to be the same this year, right, Dr. Fogel? No, they won't be. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, There are now 40 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 on Earth, with more than 20% of them here in the United States. As President Trump holds outdoor political campaign rallies multiple times a day, with no social distancing or masks required, he repeatedly states we are rounding the turn in regard to the pandemic. He's wrong. Case numbers are exploding. Let's look at the facts. More than half of the states have seen COVID-19 cases increase by more than 25% in the last two weeks alone. At least 10 states reported their highest ever single-day tallies of new COVID infections this past Friday. And on that day, the United States had its highest one-day total of new cases since July. As infections rise, so do hospitalizations. A number of medical centers, including the University of Utah Hospital, have run out of ICU beds. It's just a matter of time before we see new spikes in the number of COVID-19 deaths as there's open time lag between hospitalizations and deaths. There are a number of reasons why the pandemic is getting worse. One, young adults are back at universities after being cooped up at home since March. Two, there's widespread COVID fatigue. And three, too many people are mask deniers. Mask use is now more important than ever. Wearing a mask should never be a partisan issue. The virus is winning. Now we are about to enter the perfect storm. Things are about to go from bad to worse as temperatures get colder, forcing more people indoors where airborne spread is much more likely to lead to infection. With flu season about to start, some experts say we are facing a twindemic. We also have upcoming holidays that further accelerate cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Thanksgiving weekend could result in a new surge as young adults return home from campuses where infection rates are high because many students too frequently ignore unenforceable public health measures. We are looking at a quarter of a million dead Americans shortly after the upcoming election, which will likely rise to a half a million sometime next spring. The death toll will be much higher if we ignore the public health experts. This may sound bleak, but there are some reasons for hope. Scientists have learned an incredible amount about a novel disease in record time, and we are still learning. Doctors do a much better job of managing COVID-19 patients now than they did at the start of the pandemic as we learn what treatments work and which ones don't. Early on, it was a trial and error approach. Now patient management is typically dictated by a series of scientific studies that support proven treatments. There are also numerous vaccine trials in the U.S. and around the world that offer promise for 2021. We cannot let our guard down now. 
We need to push COVID fatigue aside. We cannot afford to ignore our scientists and public health experts. Listen to them. Practice social distancing. Avoid large crowds. Religiously wash your hands like you did last spring. Also, modify your holiday plans. I urge you to go to cdc.gov and observe their Thanksgiving guidelines. There have been too many avoidable deaths. The actions of Americans in the months ahead will determine whether we will have more avoidable deaths or whether we will save lives. There is one proven prevention strategy supported by scientific evidence that works. Wear a mask. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. Those numbers are just staggering. That was Dr. John Fogel. Dr. Fogel is Adjunct Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, Dr. Fogel, thank you so very much for being on this program. Now is the time for our very, very popular segment here at Talk Dan Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your radar screen? Today's Talk Back is a COVID grab bag. I am in the process of developing a 90-minute COVID-19 webinar for ICD University in December to relate new codes and updates, and my inbox is replete every day with articles about the coronavirus. Sunday, I took a walk with my husband, and I had to grab a surgical mask mask from his stash in his car because all my hand-sewn masks were in the wash. I had to take it off after a short while because it smelled so vile that it literally made me want to vomit. He donned it and assured me that that was what those masks always smell like. The Cleveland Clinic no longer allows providers to wear homemade or store-bought masks. They are mandated to wear surgical masks although an email from them just this morning encouraged the general population to wear a cloth mask or face covering went out. Thank goodness I no longer practice clinically. How this relates is that a study came out last week out of um, 13 academic medical centers in 12 states, noting that 6% of 3,248 participants had SARS-CoV antibodies, even though they had not been aware of contracting COVID-19. These were healthcare providers, and the findings were that healthcare providers who reported always wearing face coverings when interacting with um, with patients had lower zero pre- uh, prevalence than those who did not, and HCPs who reported a shortage of PPE at their medical centers were more likely to have detectable antibodies than those who had ample supplies. Forty-four percent of the approximately 195 sero- serology positive group did not believe they had previously had COVID-19. I wondered, were some of the false positive antibodies, some of the uh, antibody tests false positive? This reminded me of other instances of false positives in the news, such as in professional sports teams and at colleges. I'm quite attuned to this since my father's false positive PCR testing debacle. This led me to research false positives in PCR testing, and I found an article in The Lancet which noted that false positive COVID-19 tests in the UK are increasingly likely with substantial consequences at the personal, health system, and societal levels. It makes sense. More testing, even with a low false positive rate, will lead to more, more false positives by the law of numbers. One of the references from the Lancet article was another article which discusses the false discovery rate, which is the proportion of positive test results which are false positive, and its relationship to prevalence, 
which is the percentage of population currently infected. If the positivity rate is low, even a small false positive rate can produce a large false discovery rate. I am really hesitant to sound too loud an alarm about false positives. I would rather have people take a false positive test seriously than have a person with asymptomatic COVID-19 spreading it around because they blew off a positive test as being probably incorrect. I am afraid, however, the statistics about COVID-19 are somewhat inaccurate. There are false negatives, there are false positives, there are untested individuals who have disease. The death rate may be inaccurate, but over 220,000 people have died in the U.S. For every person who dies, 19 more have required hospitalization. Many of those will have permanent or long-lasting heart, lung, or neurological damage, including strokes. It is important to remember that COVID-19 isn't a binary dead or fully recovered situation. The studies are incontrovertible that wearing face coverings save lives. If 95% of us wore masks, the total number of deaths would drop by almost 50%. Vaccines aren't immediately forthcoming, and adoption of vaccination is likely to be feeble. A large WHO study just came out suggesting that remdesivir, one of the drugs which President Trump received when he had COVID-19, does not reduce mortality. Thanksgiving and Christmas are coming. It's going to be a long, hard winter. Listen to the science, Tony Fauci and me. Practice hand washing, crowd avoidance, physical distancing, and wearing a mask over your nose and mouth. Emily wants me to show you that I have my mask on a lanyard around my neck rather than keeping it in my other um, germ-infested pocketbook. So with that, stay safe and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much for those very helpful tips and those very colorful face masks, too. That is going to be a wrap for this 436 Live edition of Talk to Tusi. And I want to thank our panelists today for being on the broadcast, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat. Thanks very much, Dr. Moffat. Lori Johnson, thanks for the quoting report. Tim Powell, as always, thank you for that cost report. Dr. John Fogel, he reported our lead story this morning. Thanks again for being on our broadcast. And, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. If you haven't already voted, this might be a good day, a very good day to go out and register to vote in the upcoming election. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you for being with us, and be sure to wear your mask, wash your hands, and practice social isolation. It's dangerous out there. Thanks for listening. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.